ultimately I needed to stand for my team and what I believed was the right thing to do for our business, quite frankly, going forward. You know, so I stared at him pretty directly and challenged him on those things. And, you know, at some point I, I will say there's a hierarchy for a reason. Hi, and welcome to Solved It, the show where we explore big, impossible problems and talk to the people who solve them. I'm Karen Worthy, your host, and I'm excited to have you here. Let's get started. Today, we'll be talking with Victoria Peltier, a managing director at Accenture. Victoria has led an impressive operations career, landing her first COO role at the age of 24 and becoming a CEO at the age of 41. Along the way, she's overcome adversity, lifted up others, and solved some very difficult problems. But before we dive into that, I'd love to start the story a little earlier. Victoria, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Karen. Glad to be here. Glad to have you as well. As I've gotten to know you, I've become even more impressed with your story, and I'd love to start a little earlier in your journey. Can you tell me a little bit about your early career and what challenges you faced when you were first starting out? Well, I started out much younger than I think most, and I think that comes from being adopted into a family with lower socioeconomic status. So I never had to worry about going hungry, and I always had clothes on my back. They came from Kmart. Uh, but anything I wanted above and beyond that would be something I had to work for. So I actually started working uh, at age 11 in a hair salon, doing everything but actually cutting or taking care of hair and moved and got promoted uh, from there into, you know, becoming manager, assistant manager of the shoe store I worked at at 14 to working in medical offices all throughout school and into university and ultimately what led me on the journey I am now is a very different path. I wanted probably from the age of 10 or 11, to be a lawyer. And so that was my path. And while I was in university getting my undergrad, I worked for a bank in their contact center. And within six months, I got promoted into a leadership role. And I stayed with them all throughout university and got promoted in, into a senior management role. And I thought, I'm just going to take a year off before I go to law school. And if I love the city, they relocated me to. So I moved from, I'm originally from Canada. So I moved across from Western to Eastern Canada, I lived in Toronto and I thought if I love it there, I'll stay. If not, I'll go back and I'll just take a year off before I go to law school. And what I will tell you, Karen, is I did neither of those things. I never moved back out West and nor did I go to law school because what I realized, and this is one of the things I, I coach or mentor people on is around, you know, finding their joy and their passion and marrying what they enjoy doing with what they can be paid to do and what's, you know, in demand. And I, I loved the operations world, the business world of being a leader. And so I chose to stay down that path. And I was a voracious learner. So I took my securities license. I went from like retail banking into, you know, the credit side to ultimately leading a large operation in the discount brokerage for one of the large Canadian banks. And it was the experiences I'd had running those large operations and across a couple of different fronts. That is actually what got me noticed by the um, recruiters that brought me in to be the COO of an outsourcing company that had large financial services clients at just age 24 as a brand new mother in a very big stretch role. Oh my gosh. How are you feeling at that point? That's a lot of stuff going on all at one time. There uh, was a lot, yes. So there was a multitude of emotions swirling around. Again, you know, new mom, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, can I, you know, leave my son with, it was my mother-in-law at the time. I mean, so obviously great hands to be in, but you know, can I, am I comfortable doing that? There was a significant amount of imposter syndrome for sure. I was the youngest by two decades around the executive table. I was the only woman 
I'm also part of the LGBT community. At that point, I was married to a woman. I now married to a man. You know, so I felt kind of the only on a, on a bunch of fronts. And also stepping into that COO role, everything except for finance basically reported into me. And I had led large scale operations teams, but HR and technology and sales and client management, all of these new functions uh, began to report into me. So I had to get really comfortable quickly. One, say, hey, I don't know what I don't know. Um, which I've always been pretty good at that, actually, but leaning really heavily and finding the right leaders to run each of those areas that I had limited experience in. That company and that role taught me a lot about leading in business. It was also an outsourcing company. And so, you know, people outsource our mess for less, um, sending it elsewhere. And so you need to be very, very good at performance management and making sure you're tight operationally or you lose money. So it was a horrific 24-7 felt like I was on call kind of operation learning a lot as I went along as a new mom. But really foundationally, I attribute a lot of my future career success and growth because of the foundation I learned there. It's an amazing set of skills that you were able to learn in such a short time. As you took on departments that you had no or very little experience with, like you mentioned HR, you mentioned finance, a couple different other things. What was one tip or trick that somebody listening who might be taking on a department they don't know a ton about, what one thing would you recommend to them to help them learn through that learning curve quickly? Well, find the trusted partner to help you with that. You know, so for me, I think of HR. So although I've been leading people and I understood a lot about HR policies and procedures, I was far from like a certified expert in understanding even some of the legal pieces. And so for me, I hired a new HR leader who came with that background and she was my trusted confidant. And I asked her to help teach me as much as I asked her to lead the function as well. And so I think, you know, my advice would be to, again, acknowledge that you don't have that expertise, do as much learning and be self-taught as well. Uh, and then finding the trusted people as coaches and mentors to you, but also the individuals that you trust with that capability and experience and skill set to lead. No, it makes total sense. So what happened next in your journey after this role? So my career, what, what was interesting is, and so obviously I said I never went to law school, but the that foray, that journey into the business to business world was new, right? I'd come from a business consumer environment in a banking world. I love the complexity that it brought. You're serving multiple constituents, in this case, a corporate client that paid our bills, but you're ultimately servicing either their employees or their customers themselves. And so there's a dynamic that comes with that that I really enjoyed and a lot of challenge in different types of work. So in the outsourcing environment, it was everything from, at, initially it was mostly contact that are back office were, but, you know, whether that's finance, whether that's sales, whether it's customer service or tech support. So I learned a lot about a lot of different types of work across all industries. So that for me just kind of led me to, you know, further down that path to stay in a professional services B2B environment. And so from there, you know, if you looked at my LinkedIn profile, for example, some people will say, well, like, I don't see this linear path. And I'll say, it's not. They're tangentially, it's all connected. It's all B2B consult to operate with technology in there as the enabler, but across a, a variety of different slices. So from the pure play BPO contact center and back office, it became more and more technology enabled as time went on and less about the labor arbitrage to I, I shifted to corporate travel for almost a decade. And so again, we're providing technology to book travel online, 
and consulting over how to do that and what kind of policies and contracts do you need, but ultimately running that. So again, consult to operate with technology enablement, but I learned a whole other part of the industry that I, I didn't know before. And that was the one where I, I ended up becoming president of a company in my 30s and ultimately led one of the largest corporate travel portfolios in the world, uh, which was with American Express. And, but then I shifted out of that. I made a personal decision to move back when my ex passed away, sadly, and we had, we were divorced and so sure. sorry. custody of our children. I had to, that, that job at Amex had me on the road like 80, 90% of the time. And so I moved back to a, a Canadian based role where my kids were still based in Toronto. I had been working in New York uh, with a role that had me doing less travel, but I shifted gears again. And I went to Aon where I started to do HR consulting technology and operations. So at this point, I actually had some experience because HR had reported yeah. to me, but focusing exclusively on doing that for other companies was was new. And that's where some of my passion around leadership and culture and developing that within organizations now became also part of my day job, working with CHROs and other C-suite executives on not only how to deliver HR services to their employees, but started to consult with them about how they looked at their own workforce and culture and the talent very differently. And that was just personally a passion of mine. And so it then became a, a day job for me as well. I can hear the passion coming through. Um, it definitely seemed like you love what you do, which is important. You talked earlier and on about the joy and the purpose and the passion behind that. Yeah, absolutely. I think you need to, I've always had the 80-20 rule. And so, you know, 80 looking to work for a company and in a role where at least 80% of the time you get up excited and going into work every day, there's always going to be the 20%, whether that's a mix of some people you don't enjoy, some clients you don't enjoy, some administrative stuff you just have to do, but otherwise 80% of it should should bring you some significant satisfaction or joy. 100% agree. So it was while you were at this, uh, at a, I believe at one of your corporate travel roles, when you experienced something that is pretty intense, you had correct me if I'm wrong, six acquisitions in 18 months. I would love to hear where you were at the beginning of that journey and why this these acquisitions even took place. And then we'll kind of walk through them. Yeah. So I worked for a company that actually, when I first started for them, it was even in a joint venture. So I, there was multiple transactions beyond acquisitions. So we started as a joint venture with another corporate travel provider. We ended that joint venture, rebranded and went public. And then we acquired six companies so that the joint venture previously had had a good partnership in terms of how we could operate around the world. And the company was headquartered in the UK. It's a really strong presence in Europe in particular. And the JD partner we worked with was US headquartered. And so the acquisitions came as a result of needing to build up our North American presence. And so there was just a series, as you stated, we had six over the course of about 18 months and right business strategy to again, quite frankly, buy a book of business immediately, quite quickly to gain that presence. But for me and my role at the time was leading North American operations. And so in that corporate travel world, when you look at the number of STEs in the business, the majority of that, as like many companies, sits in the operations world. So I became accountable for integrating in some cases and some of those acquisitions was on point for the entire integration from a, from an executive standpoint, you know, working with technology to, you know, bring, get, get everyone on the same platform, et cetera. But for me, it meant a series and succession of reorganizations. In many cases, there were synergy, cost, takeout, and it was a challenge on a bunch of fronts. So, you know, I, 
I was relocated. Um, that was my first relocation from Toronto to New York. And first of all, they're like, here's this young Canadian chick who hadn't spent in her entire life in corporate travel. So there were some like long time travel people who were like, hmm, what does she know? So I needed to demonstrate, you know, what value and experience I brought to the table, but also message and communicate in a very different way with some of these people that I would lean on them again for their trust and as my trusted colleague and for their knowledge and experience. Although at some point I needed to, I remember one of the really difficult parts of this work was reporting to our North American president who wasn't prepared to be as bold as I believed we needed to be. So the synergies that I'd make recommendations and some of it needed to be outside of the things I had control over. And yep. It, it started to get to a point where I felt everyone felt it was going to be a death by a thousand cuts. And I said, this needs to stop. We need to go big, go bold, be transparent that we're doing this because otherwise we're, we run this risk and people are sitting, you know, at the edge of their seats constantly over in fear over whether they're going to lose their jobs or not. So I needed to be, you know, quite bold and direct with my boss over what we needed to be doing differently as we continued to go through these acquisitions and looking more broadly, again, outside of my remit of operations. More broadly, in some cases, it was just stuff that hit from other areas in my P&L. And I'm like, I'm not prepared to pay for it. So you're going to need to do something about it. It sounds like that must have been a difficult conversation with your boss at that time. How did that go? What did you take away from that conversation? I learned that not everyone's as comfortable picking the bold action and decisions that that I am. And that's what that's why I'm a big advocate for, you know, diversity in the workplace period. It's diff- the different experience and skills and capabilities that make a well-rounded team. But ultimately, I needed to stand for my team and what I believed was the right thing to do for our business, quite frankly, going forward. You know, so I stared at him pretty directly and challenged him on those things. And, you know, at some point, I, I will say there's a hierarchy for a reason. So I can put all the risks and the options on the table and someone does get to make a decision. But then as an individual myself, in that you have a choice over how you want to move forward. And I left there, actually when my former leader had left. And then as I reported to this North American president, he'd been trying for a year to get me to join him. And when I saw that there wasn't some of the progress being made and these actions taken, I made the decision to leave. I understand that. I totally understand that. I want to loop back to, you You talked about six different acquisitions over the 18 months. If you think back to that first acquisition, how it felt, how it went, what things worked, and honestly, probably what things didn't work, what changed and what lessons did you learn from that first one through to the sixth one? Like, what did you do different on that last acquisition versus the first one? Uh, the first one was the heaviest. Um, it was the largest of the acquisitions. So learned a lot through that, quite frankly. And I think in that instance, we were buying a a strong regional player that had really, really deep client relationships and connections. And I think that was one of the things that was underestimated going into that acquisition. You know, the who was going to manage those client portfolios going forward. Again, we were looking to synergize and bring things together. So there was a delicate balance over timing for some of those and the importance of the relationships and how we created the right, right structure. I'm a big believer, you know, you build the right structure and then you put the names in the box rather than building the boxes around the people themselves. And easier said than done sometimes too, though. Yeah, this was one 
that because some of the relationships were unknown or the depths of them and the risk it would create for me to make change. So by the time I got to that sixth one, there was much more done in the due diligence stage so that as it came in, that cycle time shortened dramatically to recognize what could be done and at what pace. That's a really great learning. Totally makes sense. As you, so over this 18 month span, you're personally learning and growing. The company is evolving as you go through these acquisitions and the company learns and grows. What was the result of this 18-month period? What happened at the end? How did it all work out? We, at that point, I think we built a very, very solid foundation and team to the point that we were then winning significant new business in the market and really large-scale clients. I mean, massive global financial services clients and others. And I think that that's a result of the fact that, you know, we now have this incredibly strong, sizable team that could take that kind of work on. And so that for me was success. Also, the fact that we had like a 95% retention rate of our clients spoke volumes that we were able to manage. That's huge, yeah. Change, continue to deliver strong performance and maintain their trust and confidence to continue going forward. 95% is an amazing retention rate for clients as you go through that kind of transition. Any best practices around client retention? And you wrap your arms around them quickly, quickly. Um, and so, I mean, part of the preparation work, um, once, you know, you're in, the, in that due diligence process, I mean, there's a lot contractually you need to look at as it relates to change of control and what exists, what rights do they have there. As I mentioned, understanding the relationship and dynamics and who's connected to whom is critically important. And I think much like, I mean, my approach to business period, whether it's with my team or in front of clients is to be there to be incredibly authentic and transparent with them. You know, people, people do business with people they like and trust and therefore continue to want to or continue to do business with. And so that's always been the way I've operated. So, you know, with radical candor to steal that phrase from Kim Scott, but having that kind of conversation. So for me, the change management and communications approach was something I spent a lot of time on in that exercise. So how cool is getting out in front of the client with what message at, you know, at what time, uh, and then making sure that there's significant frequency. We're hearing them, if they're see seeing any changes, what challenges are you hearing? What could I do differently for? And many times it was the keep, stop, start kind of conversation, right? Like we've, we've now acquired this company, but I'd really love to hear what were they doing well? What were they not? Like, are there opportunities for me to improve it now? And how do we partner? What does success look like for you going forward and having those kind of dialogues? No, I love it. And it sounds like you guys built a playbook as you went through this process on what some of those best practices were, um, which can be so powerful in client retention, customer retention. Exactly. There you go. At the end of this, how did your team feel? How did you feel as you succeeded with these acquisitions and went through this process? The, the team felt good. I mean, that conversation I had with the president, North American president at that point, in terms of the bold nature we needed, if we were going to do another round of layoffs, like on, I said, we're, we're doing it and we're doing it. And I want the message to be like that we're done. Um, and this was near the, the end of all the acquisitions. So we, I can more confidently state that. So I think, I mean, the, the team was feeling a bit of unrest. And so the ability to come back with some of that messaging to them certainly helped. I had hired some incredibly strong talent as well to assist with that. So we had this great team. And there were some that had come over and there's one leader in particular, she, I remember she was the one who was probably most skeptical of me. She was probably 20 or 30 years. My senior had grown up her entire career in travel, 
what like a native like New Yorker. So again, what does this like Toronto chick know when she's coming down here? And that one took me a year, a year of like, and she had an amazing relationship with her client. She was one of those ones like that the client loved her as much as they love, you know, the, the team that delivered. And so for me, that was another success. It took me a full year to finally get her on board and see what value did I bring as her boss to her and to our business, given that, again, I didn't have the same number of years of experience and we worked exceptionally well together. And I'd say that was, you know, probably 90% of the team would say that the strength of the team that we had overall and and the foundation that we built to continue to grow going forward. A whole year. That's that's some perseverance there, Victoria. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, in, in different circumstances, I wouldn't wait that long. You talk about a traditional performance improvement process. No, hers was more around personality and fit, but we would have lost a substantial piece of business if I didn't find a, made it, a way to make it work with her. So totally get it, it ultimately did, but it was, a, it was a long, painful road for me, I'll tell you. I understand that completely. All right. Any other advice or insights from the acquisitions that you'd want to go through? If not, I would love to switch over to rapid fire questions. Well, the only other thing I would state is I find a lot of companies think that they can handle the change management on their own. And they might, you know, bring over like a project manager, integration management team, et cetera. But and those are like literally sitting at a PMO and working through Gantt charts and like uh, that's it. But the on the rest of the team, you're asking them to absorb all of this activity on top of their day jobs, which if you're performing in optimal productivity levels, like they, they can't absorb that level. And so what I would state is there's develop a really, really strong plan before, again, through due diligence and understanding, again, the communications and change management. And don't underestimate the, the impact of change and the resistance to change from the teams. And then finding some additional support to help with that. And oftentimes that that might support, which costs money. I mean, 10 per, generally when doing large scale transformations, whether that's implementing new technology or in these kinds of integration activities, at least 10% of your cost should be baked in there. And so don't skimp on that. If you want it to be really successful, I'd encourage a lot of investment in, of time and resources in that. That's a great piece of advice. I've seen so many companies go through and try to do that change management and manage it internally on their own. And oftentimes it's not enough. I 100% agree with you on that. Even if they're amazing employees doing that change management. Well, what I see is, and again, my career in professional services is that you, there's a PMO generally that manages client implementations or sort of internal projects. But when you talk about some of these massive, whether it's digital transformations or M&A or whatever, like it's a very different type of project to manage. And again, the resistance to change from the leadership and the rest of the employees is also very different than just implementing from this technology to that technology. And so therefore, find a company or a team that's got the superpower of helping you uh, on that journey. Great advice. All right. You ready to dive into the rapid fire questions? I'm ready. All right. First one. I am an avid reader, although at full transparency, I do a lot of it on Audible. What is a great book that you have read recently? So I had a, a really bad accident earlier this year and was in a wheelchair for a little bit, both broke both arms and shattered my knee. Oh, no. And one of my good friends bought me the Viola Davis book, which I then went and got the audible version of it. And I love her as an actor. I talk a lot. I do a ton of public speaking and I talk about being unstoppable, about being incredibly resilient. And I just love she shared her story who in a lot of that as well, obviously comes out in it. So it was a great, a great read. I have not read that one, but it is now going on my Audible list. I love it. 
All right. Uh, next up, what is your favorite podcast, excluding this one? <laughs> I just got my Spotify rear and wrapped up. And so I would have said this anyway, but it reconfirmed it. So I listen to the, the daily podcast. I work out at the gym six days a week and I start my day by listening to that, getting caught up on whatever the latest you know news is and getting some some information from there. I started, I'm a member of Chief, the Women's Executive Network, and they have a podcast and there's been a couple of good ones there that I'll throw in. And then um, I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek and Adam Grant and Brene Brown. And there was a two-part podcast with the three of them, um, which was oh, pretty- Oh, it was amazing. Oh yeah. my gosh, yes. If any of our listeners, if you have not listened to that one, that one is amazing. Perfect. I am a big fan of self-improvement. I'm constantly looking for what I need to do to help myself improve. And then when I'm mentoring folks, I do the same thing with them. What are you actively working on for self-improvement right now? I'm incredibly self-aware. Um, and it was something I think my my adoptive mother, given my early years, helped me build that muscle. And I hated it when I was a child. And she's like, she'd, she'd sit me down and she's like, Tori, we need to understand why you're like feeling and Oh, mom, like I hated it, hated it. But I actually, that for me is one of the things that helps me dramatically in terms of my own self-improvement is when I realize I'm having a strong, sometimes visceral reaction to something to be able to sit back and reflect like, why am I feeling this way? What, why, why did I have that reaction? And so I would encourage, first of all, in terms of self-improvement to get really good at staring back at the person that faces you in the mirror, one, but two, also having kind of a trusted group around you who can be radically candid with you and share some things that you you just might not have perspective into. And then the next step of that for me is then around modeling that thought, action, language, behavior that you want to be and become, right? They talk about, you know, how ha the number of days it takes for habits to form and it might be uncomfortable and not natural and it could sometimes take definitely longer than the 30 days or whatever they say for habits to form. But to continue to lean into the discomfort, doing the things that you've been reflective on that you need to change to drive the improvement. I love that. And then last but not least, what is one piece of advice you would give to someone who's facing an impossible problem? I don't personally believe that anything is, I shouldn't, impossible. I'm sure that the sure there is. Like, I am not going to become an Olympic, I'm 46 years old. I'm not about to become an Olympic athlete, athlete anytime soon. Okay, so that aside, I think, you know, generally the challenges or obstacles that are put in front of us are not insurmountable. They are just that. They are challenges. You know, my book title, my signature keynote, my life philosophy is about being unstoppable. And that just means that things are going to come our way. We're going to deal with them again. We're going to sit on that. I, I'm a highly emotional individual. I'm going to have an emotion and then I'm going to pick myself back up and I'm going to focus on the goal, the purpose, the mission that is ahead or that I'd set for myself. Uh, and the steps, and sometimes they're baby steps. And then eventually, you know, that what seems impossible or insurmountable, we will have just taken that many more steps towards our goal. I love it. It's not an impossible problem. It's just a challenge. And one baby step at a time, we'll get there. Exactly. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time and for this conversation, Victoria. I have truly enjoyed speaking with you today and I've learned so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.